Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, game ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff. I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. I'm a pop culture enthusiast, and I'm here with my co-host, Jordan Baker. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, I recently have had a child. Yeah, congratulations, all of us of Spark Science people. We congratulate you on your, your baby. Thanks. That you, you made a person. It's Good a job. a tiny little thing. Yeah. It cries and poops. Yeah. We all do that. We're right. Yeah, every day. <laughs> but, but I actually have to take care of it. Now, right. So. right, that's true. <laughs> so how has the upfront, have you done it at all since the baby is I have born? been on a little bit of hiatus. Today I started making a, uh, I'm redoing my motorcycle. So I'm repainting it, wow. reconfiguring it. That's so, but you haven't done any comedy since I the baby's haven't. been born. No. But you have all this new material now. I do. This new yeah. poop. Yeah. I do. There's a lot of poop stories already. Oh, poop is funny. That's it a is. fact. That's a scientific fact. Right. I will go on record on saying that. We're going to switch gears here and stop talking about Fine. poop. Fine. Yeah. Today we're joined by Dr. Jose Serrano Moreno. He's a biologist at Western Washington University. He's also a cellular physiologist, and he's awesome. I talk to him frequently at Western. And today he's here to talk to us about cells and how they communicate and perform multiple physiological tasks. Does that sound right? Sounds good. All right. So before we go into that, before we talk about how cells communicate, all that kind of stuff, I do want to eventually talk about concussions. We've talked about this at work. A little bit. A little bit at work. But before we do that, I want to go into your story. So let's Mm -hmm. go into a time machine. Let's all go. There we go. Yeah, it's 2015, Back to the Future. Yes. And we're going to go and we're going to talk about, like, why did you go into science? What made you like science? And where are you from? Well, first of all, uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's, besides the honor, it's a magnificent opportunity to talk with the people in, the, in, in Bellingham and everywhere. Um, answer the question, I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. Is this, is Venezuela? This? Venezuela. You sound like you're from uh, Railroad Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Minnesota, Minnesota. Oh, really? <laughs> he lived yeah. in Minnesota for a while. Oh, yeah. right, right? Caracas is a little different to Bellingham. It's around five million people. That's a little different. Uh, tropical, um, <laughs> chaotic, <laughs> and politically incorrect, mm. uh, violent, and fun. Okay. Mm. I did my um, K twelve back there, and also I did my undergrad in Venezuela, I oh, okay. in the Central University of Venezuela, which is a little, little bit different to Western, it's around 55,000 students in the wow. center of the city. So let's let's tell our listeners how many people are in Western, so it's around 15,000. 15, 15, which is not yeah. bad. It's not bad. Yeah. No, no bad, it's actually a middle-sized middle university. But you're saying 55,000. 55,000. Only interesting thing is that my degree as an undergrad is different to the bachelor, because we have a dissertation. We did a dissertation. Right. So we do the, um, a seminar, we do the dissertation, and we have 160 credits. So I was talking to, I, I had a friend in, in grad school that have did their bachelor's, or I'm doing air quotes, bachelor's degree in other countries, and it's really like a bachelor's plus like a, a year, master. a master's. Yeah. We are. When I graduate, I start to work in, in research back in Venezuela, and I start to do my master's. 
And the idea was to complete some kind of, of research program. But then I had the opportunity to come here. And the trade-off was that my master or my potential master will be not accepted. I had to start from scratch. Yeah. And that's why I did. However, yeah. that has advantages. One of the advantages was that when I used to do my PhD, which was in Case Western back in Cleveland, Ohio, I had some experiences that most of my classmates didn't have. And in terms of the classes, it was actually a good opportunity to compare pedagogical strategies and also the chance to see the author, the people who actually write, write the papers. Yeah. So when it wasn't back in Venezuela, we have, of course, contact with our own researchers. But a lot of the papers in English were done by people from the United States. Right. So when I had here, actually, my... My experience as a PhD student was not only at academic level, was also interacting with those names as a human beings. And this is something interesting because for people who was born here, that is taken by granted. So that opportunity was great. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> taken for granted. I didn't even think of that. Like most of the papers are done in English, so we we uh, see yeah. all those people all the That's time. Right. But you're not going to see them as. Much I mean, as the first well. time when I had a, a dinner with a Nobel Prize was fantastic. I had a I chance. Still I had a chance to as a as a PhD student to to have dinner and lunch with at least four or five five Nobel Prize awards. What wow. in Cleveland? In, in Case wow. Western, yeah. Oh, Case Western, yeah. In Case Western, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have my own biases, obviously. Yeah, that's a very interesting <laughs> thing because people feel that Cleveland is a kind of run-down city. But Case Western is one of the top 25 universities in the School of oh, Medicine yeah. in the whole nation. It's true. Actually, part of my, my teachers are back in, in Case Western, two of them working with Nobel Prize. And they, my tutor in Venezuela was working with a Nobel Prize person too. Really? So, yes, and then I have wow. this kind of connection yeah. with some people there. I was yeah. very lucky in that point of view. Yeah. So then you ask me why I start in science. And it's interesting because it's a connection between, of course, a usual, a good teacher yeah. and pop culture. Yep. Well, then this is perfect for the perfect. show. Awesome. Tell so us this awesome my, story. My teacher was my seventh grade biology teacher. Cecilia, awesome, wonderful woman, and she was very enthusiastic, and she was beautiful. And then I simply say, perfect, I want to be biologist. So that's, that's why you paid attention. <laughs> no, I had no doubt about it. <laughs> that's part of the biology. Okay. The pop culture is interesting because there is a movie called The Fantastic Voyage. The Fantastic Voyage okay. is what, a What year was this? 1967. Okay. I saw the reruns when I was a little kid and then look at the game. Okay. It's actually is based in one script by Isaac Asimov. Actually, oh, Asimov, really? Isaac Asimov wrote this? Asimov wrote the script and then wrote the novel or the, 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 the short story uh -huh. based on the script that he did before. Really? That's right. Now I'm going to look this up. So the Fantastic Voyage is the story of there is one big guy, I think it's a member of the CIA or something, that he has a tumor, a brain tumor. Oh, no. And there is no way that we can operate. However, they had the technology <gasps> to make a small a ship. I know this story. And made right. a small the ship, and then they put different guys, including a couple of surgeons and Raquel Welch. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course so is. when I saw that, I said, interesting. I see a theme to your... But the beauty... <laughs> you, you see, you see the, 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 yeah, I see a theme to your interest yeah, here. But the interesting thing about this movie, of course, in terms of um, technological advances, was a little bit 
broad, it's not the best thing. Right. But that was fantastic because there is a moment that they had to go inside of the body and then they go to the respiratory tree, they go to the heart, they had to switch between the veins and arteries, cool. they had to go to the digestive system, Ugh. and they had to go to the to basically back to the brain. So that is highly influential in the way I perceive the universe. When I teach a class, I don't teach explaining what the molecule do or does. Right. I am the molecule. I see what the molecule does because right. I, I behave as a molecule. And Eric, who is next to me now, he can... Hey, Eric is our, our chief engineer and editor. Here. And he's my, one of my students now. Yeah, he's also a student. He can <laughs> see, he can, he, can, he can witness and can say that I usually, I, I right. acting as a molecule. When I'm talking about it as a water, I make all the, the protons exchange moving. Yeah. And then for me, it's very easy to see what are the changes in the physical chemistry properties of any molecule because I am the molecule. Right. And for that coming from that particular movie. Right. So when I describe what happened in the circulation, something that we did this morning, I remember when I see in the movie and the, and the, <laughs> the ship is going back, go to the arteries and they are backward. And then when they told them the arteries, always the blood or the arteries are leaving, it's because I am in the ship actually try to be against that. So yeah. I, am, I am seeing the movie. Yeah. And that actually affected me a lot the way I perceive things because I was curious about what is going on, what happened. Second, in terms of teaching, or in terms of just talking about some issues that helped me to do that. And of course, Raquel Walsh. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. Today we're joined by Dr. Moreno, who's talking to us about electrical signals in the body. So for our <laughs> listeners, um, Dr. Uh, Sereno Moreno, he's, he's very enthusiastic. He's, he's waving his hands around a lot. So you can kind of just imagine he's imagining himself as the molecule. I like that, um, that comment because in physics, when you do like free body diagrams, Correct. when you're doing, Correct. when you're drawing an object and the forces it feels, Correct. I always tell the students, I'm like, okay, imagine you're the object. What are you Correct. feeling? Who's pushing you? What is... Correct. You know, where is the push coming from? So I really, I really like that. And, I, and, and it came very, from sci-fi. And a very interesting <laughs> point. So for biology aficionados or students, that's the same idea. Mm-hmm. And actually, I used the same example one week ago in the same class. So when we're talking about what is the friction, what is the actually how the fluids moving across or along the veins and arteries, what is the pressure? Imagine right. you are the red blood cell. Right. Imagine that you are what is what is what, what is the direction and intensity or amplitude of those forces. Right. And then you look at what happened, and then basically you have to move in like that. Yeah. Of course, it's very easy when you are describing and tell the story. For the students, it's hard not only to right. get that because they want to make sure that they understand because they are thinking in terms of how to answer questions related. Yeah. Well, how am I right? That's right. How yeah. I can I yeah. write? Yeah. But the important point is this ludic effect. So have fun yeah. is crucial yeah. or essential to at least to get the interest, to put the motivation to actually study. And yeah. I try to do that as coming... Well, obviously for my personality, but also because I just had a memory that how be in that location 
inside of the body and therefore look at from inside. There's another reference, which is a book, I don't remember the name, but the, the, the author is a French author, it's Louis Ferdinand Zeline. Uh, Personal certain problems, but he was a great. Personally, he had certain problems. He was a. I mean, he was not a very nice guy. He was a Nazi collaborationist. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, he was a. He was a magnificent writer. Okay. <laughs> and he was a medical doctor. Okay. And he did his dissertation. It was a novel. It was a novel. It's a novel. Okay. Wow. And the dissertation was a novel in which actually he described the digestion, but without names of digestion are characters what that's right <laughs> so that's, people would actually want to read this novel and facets of so the digestion was people were, were represented as people that's right and what happened is that when you read the novel you are not obviously there's nothing to do with digestion of course but that was it's some kind of allegories of what happened right. during the process of digestion what? disgregation and absorption is the story of those characters wait wait, wait. I, need, <laughs> I need to actually read this novel so now. For this sounds like a Pixar movie <laughs> Uh, Pixar is a kind of the version V V ten of these kind of things. It right? be too okay. Right. right. But right. Pixar B-tang. has good, good okay. stuff. As everybody knows, yeah. what my favorite movie is Wally E. Is it Wally? <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Uh, there's another reference in my ta- in my classes in terms of the different Eric levels. Eric is nodding his head. Uh, different levels. The levels of understanding can be divided in Mickey Mouse level. Right. Uh, spongy, spongy Bob levels. <laughs> <laughs> Toy <laughs> Story level. Right. And Wally, which is which high, is highly sophisticated. That, that's high. Yeah. <laughs> inside, out, inside out, inside start to be in my jargon as well. Right. And so we can talk about that later. Right. right. <laughs> well, I like what you were saying about making making the science fun, but some students kind of are somewhat resistant to that. Well, I'm scared because they don't know how much, yeah. how rigorous is this kind of I mean, metaphor, right? Well, <laughs> and I, I think um, I was talking to another another student about this, and he was saying that maybe. Um, students don't want to draw pictures. Like in physics, I'm like, draw a picture, draw a picture, draw a picture. And they just refuse. And I'm like, you would get an A if you actually drew a picture because you would know what the heck was happening because you seem confused. Yeah, it's kind of a translation of physical phenomena in words. Yeah. And then words in physical phenomena. Yeah. And it's interesting because this is one of the most important skills. Yeah. And Einstein said that there's no way that you can understand anything you cannot visualize. That. It, yeah, and so, so <laughs> the student was saying that the reason a lot of students resist drawing is because they find they think it's for babies. They think it's childish. Interesting. Interesting. And like you were saying, put yourself in in the space in the ship, right? Put yourself in the ship, and you're a cell. Maybe they think that's childish when they don't understand that that's. I mean, playing these yeah. games mm. is how, as children, we actually learned things. That's the whole point. Again, Richard Freeman. Right. Richard Freeman also said that kind of things. I mean, it's yeah. just the visualization is the key. Again, biology seems to be misunderstood in terms of a different kind of science, but it's actually physical right. sciences. The physical sciences in, in complex systems. Yeah. So therefore, you need to do some minimal simplification. And that minimal simplification allows them to actually, or allows everybody, to c- create some kind of model. Yeah, we have to model. Every, you have to model it. And that is probably the most powerful way the visualization is try to do, in, uh, uh, to see it, yeah. to feel it. To listen, to go. that's why in, the, in active learning, what we try to do in some cases is just simple um, embody the, the 
transform the, right. the abstract knowledge in something tangible. So you said actor learning? Is that what you said? Acting yeah. learning. Wow. That's <laughs> kind of what I was uh, <laughs> thinking about, was yeah. that you guys are really getting uh, into the character of that's the right, of That's the right, that's right, because, because well, um, Regina and I, we are highly involved in all with this, this active learning. But for me, it's more than active, it's actually acting. Yeah. So it's actually perform. And that's, that's, for me, it's exhausting. After two hours teaching, I mean, I'm just dead. Because simple, I need to check in then, and the best way to do it is actually is perform. Right. And I understand that not all the students are able to catch the information because they are more distracted. And they are, in, in some cases, a little bit shocked because that's not a conventional way. Yeah. But my experience is that with time, they start to catch the fundamentals in terms of memories. So when you have when you read, you visualize, but if they remember my performance, they connect different attributes that they are fundamental to understand the process. Right. And for instance, this, this moment when jazz hands very enthusiastically. <laughs> that is proton this is proton changes, proton dispersion in water. That's it. And then when you have when you have a salute, basically something that has to be in salvation, this frantic movement of my hand is start to be mobilized. Right. And that is less potential. The water cannot move. And I think Eric can say that. Everybody, nobody, nobody will forget that because that is something that is obvious. You are free, you're moving a lot. When you are immobilized, you are less energy. Therefore, yeah. water always moves for high energy, low energy. When you have high concentration of salute, you immobilize water. Okay. Let's go back, though, to your story. We've, we've gone on a tangent here. So let's go back to your story. So you're in Venezuela. You do your undergrad. Then you come to Case Western. And what else kind of shapes your story on how you came to Western? Okay. Yeah. Dang. Tell me there's another girl involved. Yeah. It's, well, it's yeah, partially. Raquel Welch. <laughs> post, my postdoc, I do my postdoctoral research in, in Oregon. Okay. In OHSU. And then I marry in, in Oregon. So, and... Um, You're right, Jordan. Yeah, a certain level. <laughs> <laughs> so, the point was that um, the family of my, my wife, she, she was born in Portland. And then when I started to look for jobs, the aspiration was to remain around the Northwest. It's nice here. And in fact, when we get the chances in Western, things uh, start to work okay. However, there were you know, some, several drawbacks in personal life. Um, I was also victim of the, um, the, the economical situation in 2009 mm-hmm. that created enormous trouble. But one of the beautiful things about Western Washington University is that allows me to work in research, but also, more important, to be in contact with the students. Yeah. Because when I was in YHSU, I was a postdoc. I doing research since 8 in the morning until 9 p.m. every day. Only few students can go to those labs, and then I train in those, those students a little bit, but no experience as a teacher. So you see like three students a quarter. And not official. Wow. Not officially. Wow. At the end, of my, maybe after three or four years doing my postdoc, I asked somebody, I want to have some teaching experience. Yeah. And then I taught a couple of classes um, to health alliances, not for the medical students, but for primary physicians, for, for, diff- for a group of uh, the, the professionals related to health 
in because OHSU is Oregon Health Science University. Right. And they are a high diversity group there. So, and then I like that. And that combination of teaching plus the research I was doing in that time uh, was appealing for the people in biology uh, here in Western. Um, Western was appealing for us in that time, and then that's where here. Cool. Well, we're going to take a break, and then mm. when we come back, we're going to actually talk about science. We're going to talk about these cells, how they communicate, and electrical signals in human bodies. Thanks. All right. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science on KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Jordan Baker. And I'm Regina Barber de Graff, and today we are joined by biologist and cellular physiologist Dr. Jose Serrano Moreno. Welcome back to Spark Science, where we're talking with Dr. Moreno. Yeah! <laughs> Got it. <laughs> About electrobiology cells, and when when we said cells at, at the beginning and how they communicate, I was thinking of a prison. Oh, <laughs> we can do, do that this. analogy. We can do so it. first and foremost. Yeah, life is an open system. That means that even when you are every cell, every living organism, try to control the internal environment. That environment is in contact with the external environment. Definitely. Exchange, energy, mass, etc. Therefore, one of the most transcendental attributes of life is the ability to sense wh- what the hell is going on outside and respond to that. Right. Because you, the internal environment is so precious. Life is the ability to be alive is the perfect combination of multiple physical and chemical conditions. And it's relatively narrow in, con- in the context of the multiple possibilities in the planet. You need to preserve certain structure, otherwise, bye-bye. Oh. Now, that is called homeostasis. <laughs> Every living being has a homeostasis in good, in, in long, or in short term. Now, in order to be able to respond, you need to sense. You need, you need to have sensitivity. And the sensitivity implies that you need to have receptors. And those receptors are specialized in different forms of energy. Okay. Temperature, mechanical, oxygen, pH, etc. Right? The problem is that you are not controlling the external environment. You only is just sensing what's going on. Therefore, most of those receptors should be external, have to be in the membrane, in the external section of the unicellular organism or in specialized organs, a multicellular organism. Like us. Like us. What is the point there? You don't want, for instance, if there is no oxygen, that you undergo this change of no oxygen inside. You need to know that the no oxygen is outside. Before it affects you. Before it affects you. Okay. Right. And then that implies that you need to send a signal to the rest of the body to say, listen, there is not oxygen. How you do that? I don't well, know. there are two different <laughs> ways to do it. Or you send a chemical signal or an electrical signal. What's the difference in a body? Well, the electrical signal is actually is as pure say is differences in charges across the membrane. Let's just explain a little bit that. 
Yeah. The membrane, let's say the cell in other prison, so the, the <laughs> no, cell, the, the, the cell, right? <laughs> the cell has a membrane which actually is hydrophobic. They don't like water. Oh. So therefore, things that have charges cannot pass across the membrane. If you have a difference of charges, when I talk about charges, it's positive negative charges across the membranes, you have an electric potential. Yep. You have a voltage. You have electromotrice force. The membrane is a resistor, a simple a guy to produce resistance against the flow of ions. Ions are atoms with charge. If you have an electromotrice force and you have a resistor, you have voltage, right? Yeah. So basically, like a circuit. that is a circuit. You have a RC circuit. You I have a resistor composite circuit. Okay? <laughs> wow. Now, what the cell does? They just change the resistance to a specific ions in order that they move according to the electromotrice force. So, for instance, if I want to be more positive inside, I open a channel to the positive charge coming from outside to inside. If I want to be more negative, I open a channel to make the positive charge go in the other direction. That produces a change in electrical properties. And that change can be dispersed, can be spread in long distance very easy. You're only changing conductance. And those conductance are ion channels. And those guys control the flow of the ions across the membrane. Wow. <laughs> I didn't, okay, so, that, so that's what's happening. <laughs> so each part of your body can, uh, mm-hmm. see if I can get this right, is, is, uh, is like you can get different charges. Yeah. Basically like uh, internally to the external or just so, over your entire so, surface. So in evolution what we happen is that when you have a multicellular organism, you have a specialization. And the specialization in our body to do that is the nervous system. Okay. The nervous system sends signals everywhere. It's like wiring. You're basically plugging everybody. And then you have simply a bunch of wires connecting the whole body, send signals back and forth in order to see, I sense it's hot. Okay, go to the brain. The brain say, okay, start to sweat. Okay, get out here. So the communication happens just for electrical signals that are created in the sensors, go to the brain, to the center, and the center back and say, okay, do this, this, and that to the effectors. And that's and it's way more efficient than chemical. It's more and more efficient yeah. because you have to just do some small changes in the electrical properties. And thanks to the electrostatic interaction, you put a bunch of negative guys, the positive guys coming next to them, right. and then you actually are able to split something that is called action potential. Okay. The action potential, which Eric has to have exam in two weeks for that. Um, <laughs> take notes. It's basically take notes. Take notes. He'll just so listen to this podcast. Is ve- basically is a spike of high positive charges and uh-huh. negative charges. And that stereotype spike, electric spike, can go, for instance, to 300 feet per second. Okay. So, for instance... The, the faster neurons or the faster nerves that you have in your body are the nociceptors. Nocice means is damage, is pain. Oh. The pain receptors They're are the fastest. It's faster. Imagine yeah. you are walking and then suddenly you uh, walk up, uh, and touch, I don't know, glass foot. with your foot. 
What you have? That's actually happening. You have something called withdrawal reflex. Oh, immediately you change. What happened? In that foot, that was a sensor, was a damage that sent the signal to the brain, and the brain sent the signal back to the foot and say, take it off, withdraw. That happened at 300 seconds, 300 feet per second. That's, a, that's the ultimate idea of the electrical signals. Now, when you have a small, smallest group of cells or organisms that are relatively uh, simple, but not necessarily simple. Simple means that they are less uh, sophisticated. Right. They have a certain group of cells specialized in sense specific changes. And they like to talk each other in terms of electrical signal because, as Regina mentioned, it's cheaper, it's fast, and yeah. can be done. The other signals that you have are chemical. So you have guys that, again, you have receptors, and those receptors interact with something chemical and produce signal inside of the cells. Give me an example of that. Hormones or okay. the hormones. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about that, okay. the science of smell. Hi, everybody. I'm Jose Serrano Moreno. I'm professor at Western. I'm biologist and scientist, and I try to be a teacher. And you are listening to KNRELP 102.3 FM in Bellingham. Your community, your voice, your extension. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We're talking about electrical signals in living organisms. Hormones can have long term effects. For instance, sexual hormones. Yeah. So it's related to development. Yeah. Other <laughs> hormones are relatively short, adrenaline. Yeah. No? So what is the advantage? What is the combination? The electrical signals are, they need to be close to each other. They have to be plugged. You have to wind. They have to be in contact. They have, as something called synapse. Yeah. Okay? So therefore, you need to have all those wiring everywhere because it, there is no way they can spread in liquid. They have to have the membrane because the membrane is a resistor in the circuit that I mentioned before. Right. right. However, in the chemical signals, you can use blood. You can use the circulation. Yeah. And then a little group of cells can produce a hormone in your brain, go to the blood, and then they found the target in your whatever place. Okay? Long, long distance very small concentration, and you can have long-term effect. Mm -hmm. The combination of chemical and electrical signals that allows to coordinate the effect of multiple organs in response to something, or in even controlling your environment. And that is the milestones of life. As more and more develop, and more evolution happen, and more evolutionary driving happen there, there are more specialization, there are more uh, optimization of those signals. And that's why, for instance, you have your digestive system and your circulatory system working, even when they are not talking to each other, they are coordinated by hormones and by electrical signals. And then the efficiency Crazy. increases a lot. So, so mm. with, with chemical, you're, you're not as efficient, but, and you take longer, however, you're more mobile. Or even you can have and, more access when yeah, you want, right? Yeah. And of course, there is something called the neuroendocrine system in which it's part of your brain secreting hormones. Therefore, the brain receiving information for electrical signals everywhere, 
but then respond in that little section called the hypothalamus with the release of some hormones to control other hormones. Okay. So then... So we, they're all working together. That's which working is together. what you're saying. Exactly. You're working together. It's called neuroendocrine. Mm. So in other species, like say, in mammals, in general, that happen. Mammals, and we're talking about dogs, cats, Whales. they do. But when you look at bacteria, for instance, oh, this is another important point. Right now, most of the organisms on this planet are unicellular. They are not multicellular. So there are bacteria, there are protozoarios, there are little guys, unicellular, one guy, lone rangers. No? <laughs> <laughs> right? So obviously for them, it's crucial to know what happened because they don't have any protection. They don't have skin. They don't have any protection. So they live in continuously sending signals and receiving signals. And because they live together, they don't live together. Basically, people say that they don't secrete anything to communicate with the others because obviously they are lone rangers. But it's not true. They, as a population, in some cases, they're helping each other. For instance, some um, infections happen to us as related to some kind of population-oriented uh, behavior that some bacteria have. So, for instance, they behave in one way where they're alone, no? like everybody does. No? When you're yeah. alone, you are shy, mm, mm, polite. No? But then when you have your bunch of friends are surrounded, no? and you start to be a little bit like, what's up? What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so the, inf- the, the capacity of the infections of the, um, of the individual bacteria increases when they are in population, because they have something called quorum. They start to release hormone or chemical signals right. and start to actually start to be more belligerent, start to be more infective. Like all parties. Like we do, <laughs> yeah. like we do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. when you sense that you have some kind of support, okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to the party and let's catch the party. <laughs> <laughs> and for instance, in your respiratory system, mm-hmm. pseudomonas, which is one the most common infections that everybody has. We have pseudomonas all the time. Which, what is that? Pseudomonas is the one... Is that mono? That produces um, pneumonia or this kind of thing. Oh, okay. okay, got it. So, however, in normal circumstances, we are able to control what's going on. So when you have some problems of immunodeficiency or there is some other uh, challenges, so the chances that they reach certain... Those pseudomonas reach certain level of population increase and then there's some kind of threshold in which after that they exponentially start to be more more active mm-hmm. and that is because they have a quorum they have a chemical quorum they start to secrete chemical some substance quorum. in between them and say yes we can do it i, I, love, <laughs> I love that term chemical <laughs> chemical quorum this is yes. what they call and actually that's that's by in general what i'm trying to say is that the ability to sense to respond is intrinsic to life in, including archaeobacteria Right. They're living in, in the most harshest conditions. They need to preserve certain conditions internally in order that are compatible with their life. Right. And because nobody can control what happens outside, what they need to be alert to respond in order to restore the conditions inside. Right. When it's cold, you don't want to be there, what do you do? You try to increase the temperature. Right. When, and that's called negative feedback. Yeah. They're holding neg- the loop of negative feedback. That is related to receptors, signals, effectors, and the receptor uh, uh, integrator. The integrator say, okay, you're doing well, don't do anything. It's too cold, let's warm. It's too hot, yeah. let's, let's cold. So, mm. so which brings me to this point, 
what happens when when those don't work, right? What happens Correct. when you get, Correct. let's say, a concussion? Correct. So the human brain has around 86 billion cells. And there is a high level of specialization in the telencephalons, in the midencephalon, and the heme brain. Everybody was basically <laughs> saying in, sure, sure. in the area of the cortex, thinking in the area of the cerebellum, in the area of the close to the spinal cord. Everybody it's all has, thinking. Areas. No, because remember that you have a lot of things that are automatic. You are not thinking. When you're sleeping, oh. you are breathing. Your whole circulatory system is working. Everything's working because you are in the autonomic system. Okay. Okay? A lot of things happen without asking us. Uh, it's no decision. Autonomic. Uh, autonomic. Okay? Just, just like robots. Uh, we are the robots, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to have that clip. We are the robots. Are the craft robots. Word. Craft word. I mean, this is, we need to use craft word all the time. I do that all the time. <laughs> So anyway, yeah. what we have in concussion is something, is something interesting. Unfortunately, even when the brain is actually supported by the skull, I mean, yeah. and there are different layers, so a massive impact can produce changes in the vascularization, in the blood vessels, oh. okay? And that produces inflammation. Inflammation is the response that we have in order to preserve the rest of the environment. If something is damaged, something is damaged in one section of your body, the idea is to isolate that section in order that this damage is not spreading everywhere. So it's this feedback you're talking about. You're right. reacting you say, to... There is, for instance, the cell has certain content. If for any damage, that content is out, there are some cells to say, hey, what is this? Oh, this is not good. They try to control the situation. Inflammation implies, of course a mobilization of multiple cells, changes in water content, volume, that is not natural, right? Because right. that actually has to be a flow in between in and out and the, in the blood vessel. Except. So they make these dams. So basically they say no more, nobody can pass here. Okay. Nobody that. A consequence of that, depending on what area of your brain that concussion occurs, you will have some impairment. You will have some damage in terms of what you do. For instance, what we happen is that memory is related to the hippocampus, one particular section in the telencephalon. And Jackie probably talked a lot about that. She did in the Inside Out episode. Jackie's Jackie's awesome. Oh, Jackie's awesome, right? Jackie Jackie's awesome, no question. (laughs) (laughs) I never doubt about it. Yeah. So what we happen is that the hippocampus is connecting with other sections on the telencephalon. You retrieve memories. Some memories are actually associated to emotions. Right. Some are related to connection to other memories. So therefore, that connectivity is impaired. It's a damage for this uh, mechanical com- uh, situation related to the inflammation. Other things happen is that in concussion, the volume of the cells can be modified. And it's a very interesting story that, without too much details, one of the things that's crucial is that the volume of each cell has to be perfect. So any swelling or shrinking of the cells is not good at all. (laughs) The response is like, hey, what's going on here? It's not real good. Therefore, when you have changes in the cellular volume, there is responses to try to retrieve that in combination with the inflammation. And that area starts to be, let's say, challenged. In other words, they occupy a lot of space and energy in trying to restore the condition that they don't have and they are not working in the right way. So obviously, concussions are related to short um, loss of memory, 
no? Uh, other ones could be uh, depending on the magnitude, the amplitude of them, and the spread. How damaged are the situation could be deleterious in, in long term? Because there's another point, which is the neurons have certain plasticity, but they don't, in general, they don't reproduce again. When we come back, I want to talk about plasticity, okay. and then I want to talk about pop culture. You're listening to Spark Science on KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. We're talking to Dr. Moreno, biologist and cellular physiologist, about electrical signals in living organisms. We're back with um, Dr. Moreno. And even better. Yeah, <laughs> even better this time. We're getting better and better. Back with Dan Marino? Is Dan that what Marino. you just said? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Marino. We were, we were talking about concussions, and they do happen in, you know, uh, sports-related injuries. Dan Marino, right? Yeah, there yeah. we go. I'm sure he's got a couple. Oh, you think so? So, I mean, this is... This is <laughs> he looks happy. He looks good. He does Yeah, I think blissfully ignorant, but right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that is a big thing. So, in, you know, sports right now, even in little league football mm-hmm. and, like, mm-hmm. bigger football, there's, there's this big issue of, like, when is a concussion a big enough concussion that mm-hmm. you take these these mm-hmm. kids and adults out of out of the game. Mm-hmm. And I know we were talking about before that you, you aren't medically... You don't know a lot about the, the medical situation, but... You were saying there's different kinds of concussions, and like, how do you get back from that? How, like, the plasticity mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. brain. So let's talk more about that. It's a good setting when you do. Thank you. Yeah, because in fact, what we mentioned about concussions are some inflammation or some damage in certain regions, and depends on what region was affected, that will be some functional impact. Okay. However, the other important point is how big is that, and what's the actual, what was the reason for the concussion. If we when we talk about concussion here is mechanical damage, no? It's impact, it's right. physical impact as a consequence of playing soccer or playing football, etc. Uh, for instance, so now depends on the magnitude of that process. They will take some time in order to uh, restore the external internal conditions in that region. You know, at the meantime, the rest of neurons will be able to um, respond with certain plasticity. But the story of plasticity is again. Kind of vague, you know, because not, not, not like, not, the idea is not that every neuron can do everything they want. So, okay. learning is one way of plasticity. You actually, what rather to increase the number of neurons, what you do is increase the number of connections. So, the, the activity of the neurons, the neuronal activity, actually stimulates the ability to expand and grow and connect. That's why people say l- l- learning. Study is one way, it's like doing, it's like working out. It's when you're doing, we go to the gym in order to keep your muscle and tone. Well, when you read, when you do Sudoku, when you actually do any crossword, basically you are training your uh, neurons in order to keep doing um, synaptic, synaptic connections. One of the sad news is that the, the neurons start to die in the moment that you start to, when you start to grow, when you're bored, from yeah. that day, there are neurons that start dying. Yeah. Dying and dying and That's dying. That's what Jackie said. That That's right. Only have it's, a certain it's, amount. It's right. And then we start to get less and less and less. Yeah. The good news are that the other guys start to be stronger and stronger and stronger and start to create more and more connection. But now imagine that you have an impact of the concussion. 
and you have some damage. Why there is some damage? Because remember that the concussion is related also for uh, interruption of nutrients, on interaction of oxygen. Therefore, by the way, the um, neurons consume and glial consume a lot of the energy in your, in, in your whole body because they're using those electrical signals all the time, and you need to restore those chemical gradients in order that the positive charge only go in and the positive charge that you want to move has to be in the right position. And that okay. you, you, you need money, uh, energy, energy in order to restore that. Okay. So the brain is doing that millions of times per second, and therefore they consume a lot of energy. They need, of course, a lot of vascularization. They need a lot of nutrients and oxygen. And we talked today that, for instance, the size, the extension of the capillary network in your head is around 500 miles of blood vessels. So the ability, thanks of the process of evolution, you have a skull, you have different layers, the brain is well protected. But when there is a damage, they actually touch certain areas of the brain, well, you have to wait until that process is coming back. Yeah. And if the extension is very big, the ability to do this plasticity to restore the situation is compromised. Right. And that's why there are some permanent damage, or what we say permanent damage, or obvious damage. Other point is, it's kind of scary, is that there are some damages that not necessarily are obvious in the first time. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> is if, if there was a concussion in the, on, I don't Auto, whatever. And the autonomic system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, if it's, if it's something that you do while you're sleeping, as, I mean, how did they, could they even test that at the point of, like, For instance, take him out of the game, he's sleeping funny. And you see that in TV, actually, not only in American football, especially in soccer, football, what's it called, and the rest of the football. planet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, basically, you see the guy completely out for five seconds, they go, and then playing minutes later. Yeah. yeah, he's restoring certain activities, but we don't know yeah. what happened. So that's why it's important to do some CAT scan, do some kind of important um, uh, or d- different kind of um, test, or test yeah. in order to verify different mechanisms, different points. It's not like to see how many how many fingers you see here. Two, okay, let's <laughs> Done. Play. that's the only. Get test. back in there. This, this, this <laughs> loud, it sounds like a right, like a pop culture, like a, in the, in, in those and That's moments. what happens, and okay. that's what you saw all the time. Yeah. So, again, as you you well point out. I mean, I am not expert in terms of the different uh, clinical manifestations of concussion, but in terms of the uh, dynamics that the concussion implies or the damage that they do is basically interruption of the flow of the um, blood and nutrients and oxygen in different regions of neurons. And another point that we have to make is that most of the cells in your brain are not neurons, are Mm. glial cells. And glial cells are related to inflammation are related to control of the activity of the neurons and controlling also the blood vessels. Okay. So if they damage that touch a lot of those, those cells, obviously the mechanism to repair, the mechanism to restore the steady state, the homeostasis that mm-hmm. mentioned, mentioned at the beginning are impaired. And therefore, based on the what area was being affected, uh, how long, uh, how many times, this is another important point. Yeah, how many times. Right, how many times. Especially when you play, you play every Sunday or you play for a long time. Because in effect, perhaps during your career or as a teenager or whatever, 
you are doing okay, but we don't know what is the effect of cumulative damages in terms of later. And unfortunately, NFL, you know, that happened that there are several great players, especially um, defensive players, they are losing basically everything years later after retirement when they are in their 40s. Right. And they are going to look at what happened in some kind of accelerate damage right. of the system, which is maybe correlated for this permanent and continuous or I would say rep- repetitive concussions that will yeah. happen. Okay, so let's let's give our listeners like a definition for plasticity because what's happening is maybe the plasticity we think exists in human brains isn't exactly what's happening with these players or maybe it's just too far gone, right? I, so what exactly is plasticity? plasticity is the ability of the different neurons to interconnect based on their own activity. So as depends on the activity, depends on the input, Depends on what you learned. Depends on what you are trying to understand. That will be that can generate certain activity in the neurons, and that is the signal of those neurons to start to create more connections. Okay, so okay? it's just mm-hmm. being able to reconnect, and, reconnect, and connect well, and connect well, and connect okay. in different ways. Okay, got it. That's what you learn. Right? And then, so these players, as they get older, it's not happening. Or happen, or there is not even plasticity. There are some, in some cases, there are some physical damage. Okay, physical Basically, damage. there are some holes. And there are some completed damage. It's not, there's no way this is not plasticity because wow. plasticity is not substituting pieces or segments of the brain. Okay, got okay? it. So, and now, how you know, and this is the question you asked me several times, how you know one is too much? Well, that's the problem because there are some plasticity is a kind of moving target. So it's not the same to high concussion when you are 15 or when you are 17 or you are 9 years old or when you are 25 or you are 40 because yeah. it's not the same brain. Oh, my okay? God. And that opened another, <laughs> you know, if that opened another story, which is yeah. the use of drugs or use, when I'm talking about drugs, not only recreational drugs, I'm talking about medications. Mm. And it's a big problem about, for instance, antidepressive for teenagers. So a teenager brain is the brain of somebody who is crazy. So that doesn't make sense. So all the studies that we are dealing is basically in certain stability of the brain. And then still we don't even know how those drugs working in the normal brain or in brain of the adult people. Imagine when you go to the pre-teenagers or teenagers when the, the plasticity of the changes are so massive. The, hor- the chemical signals. And then the, the chemical, exactly, the chemical. And remember, in the, in the brain also we have neurotransmitter, the neurochemistry. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. Today we're joined by Dr. Moreno, who's talking to us about electrical signals in the body. There is one big guy, wonderful guy called Pancreas. The pancreas is a gland. <laughs> it's a gland. He's a good guy. It's a fantastic guy. It's okay. so, so fantastic that you have pancreatitis or you have cancer. Wow. In six weeks, you're gone. Wow. Eight weeks, you're gone. It's fantastic. It's one of the <laughs> most, most splendid machines that you have in your body. Okay. This guy, is, yeah. this guy is helping the digestion in the digestion of proteins in your, in your intestine, but also he controls, among other things, the, the sugar, because he secretes two different hormones. Insulin, in order to say, uh-oh, there's too much sugar, now please take the sugar in the different 
storage in the different places, muscle and liver. And glucagon, uh oh, there is not sugar, please release the sugar and go to the, because we need the food. Okay. So obviously anytime when we eat, anytime mm -hmm. when we don't we have we fast, anytime when something happens with the ingestion of, of, of sugars, well those guys are these guys continually checking and controlling. Yeah. So there are two types of diabetes, type one and type two. Type one is related to the in the impairment to release insulin. The pancreas is not doing the job for the beginning because it's in, for genetic reasons or for, I don't know exactly why. Um, yes, more genetic. Okay. So they, they don't release insulin and therefore the sugar start to be happy around rather to be in the right place, which is the muscle or the liver or right. the adipose. But the other one, I say that the other one is, is called the type 2 diabetes, which is the onset is in adult life. Right. People who has no problem start to develop diabetes. Right. And that's related to the resistance or the peripheral or the target organs. For instance, the muscle. Mm -hmm. Say, you release insulin and then the muscle say, no, I don't want to take that. Wow. And they say, okay, um, liver, no. So there is, there is a peripheral resistance. So, whoa, so what happened here? The, the, poor, the poor pancreas call and say, listen, I send insulin and you are not taking that. I will say more and more and more. Then mm. there is hyperinsulinemia, which means high level of insulin, but mm. still the glucose is high. Mm. And then because the glucose is high, has all the damage that we are talking about. And also the glucose starts to transform in fat. And then you start to have obesity as well. Right. And the obesity also produces another effect to actually making the situation worse. Right. So everybody starts to coming in some kind of down spiral that basically lack of control. Now, what happened there? There are multiple theories. Is that related to the unbalance, maybe in the unbalance in, the, in what we eat? What is the lifestyle? Yeah. Um, of course, there are some genetic, genetic tendencies. Right. But the bottom line is that the, the communication between pancreas and, let's say, the muscle mm -hmm. is affected. The receptor, for, the receptor say, hello, oh, insulin. No, I don't want to take sugar. Well, they, what kind of damage happen, that happen, happen there yeah. are under investigation for a long, long time. Yeah, why don't they want the insulin? That's um, confusing. Um, <laughs> because now there are other components, and it's, it's, like, a, it's like a snowball. So at the beginning, when there is problems, the problem can be in very low level. But then when it starts to be more and more obesity, for instance, that, that adipocyte, that, that fat, that group of cells, start to secrete another signal to make it more difficult to retain the, the sugar. Oh, okay. So in other words, you need to, it's a, it's a circle. It starts to be continuously growing and growing and growing. And then there are, for instance, um, uh, including the ability to digest the, um, the, um, the control, how do you eat, the appetite. Okay. Several things start to change it because there's a complete unbalance of chemical signals. Okay. And what we, people suggest, I've been suggesting, is there's a correlation between the input of energy and what kind of food, fructose, for instance, or highly processed sugar, seems to be producing stress on the pancreas and on the peripheral systems, and maybe that produce some effect that at the end is related to the type of diabetes. All right. But this is one example that everything is chemical and the guy saying no. Okay. Wow. Back to pop culture. And, okay. and we were talking during the break about how, you know, yes, 
um, the fantastic voyage got you into science, mm -hmm. but also there's this problem with pop culture where we, you know, we scientists mm -hmm. are portrayed one way. So we always ask our guests, do you have a example of how your field has been portrayed in pop culture in a, just a terrible way? And then you can also talk about, you know, stereotypes and stuff. Because yeah. you and I like talking about yeah, that. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting because biologists, no? All the biologists have to be in the field. Oh, there are guys that want to be in the jungle, yeah. and they're looking. Well, I don't. They're, I don't like that. I am. I, I am a cell <laughs> biologist. I am several biologists. I, I. I actually do more chemistry and physics than that kind of things. Right. Okay. Well, so, you don't go out and like get. You're not looking for cells like through your binoculars. That's right. right? Exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. Whoa. No. No. There's no, no, Jurassic no. Park. I guess. But look, Michael Kikrock is a very smart guy. The guy who wrote that story. Yeah. And um, because it's very interesting what he made. No. Yeah. And the story that you can preserve the DNA and then you can do the cloning. And I still the, don't uh, understand why cloning. we can't do that now. Uh, I, maybe we, can, we do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, that is interesting. Um, certainly there are, some, there are some trends. I mean, people who like to be in the field tends to be like that, right? Yeah. No, they don't want to be in, in tie and suit all the time. They want to walk and be uh, and camping, these kind of things. And of course, they don't take in, um, I don't say don't take a shower, but what I say is that <laughs> they, they can be <laughs> oh, a little no. bit more, it could be more informal in that point of view. Yeah, informal. So that, that's, that's a there, there's a reality there. Yeah. The other side is, for instance, this, the scientists that want to do life. The, well, the best example is Dr. Frankenstein. I was about to say that. The magnificent Dr. Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. this is a magnificent book. Yeah. It's absolutely one of the best books ever. Your student mm -hmm. over there is nodding. Eric told me I should read it recently. He, it's one of the best books ever. It's actually a deep understanding of, about what is life, what is identity, and what is the power of of the science over life. Fantastic book. But, but pop culture fantastic. has morphed it into... But then they morphed it in this game. Ha, 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 destroy the universe. They look how weird thing. All scientists are evil. They're all white guys with big white hair and they big glasses. Right. Because they look like Einstein. Because right. Einstein was the only we one who looked gloves. like this. They had gloves. Right. And then this guy... Beakers. This, this, and then, yeah, we'll destroy everything. Yeah. Right. They are mad science. I'm going to end with that. Thank you so much, Thank Dr. You. Moreno, for Thank coming you. to talk to us. And we had a great time. And come, you can come on again some other time. We can talk I, about I more stuff. I so. Yeah, I have so. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, yes. you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Jose Serrano Moreno. I'm professor at Western. I'm biologist and scientist. And I try to be a teacher. And you are listening to KNRELP 102.3 FM in Bellingham. Your community, your voice, your extension. Thank you for joining us. We just spoke with Dr. Jose Moreno about electrical signals in biology. If you missed any of the show, you can go to our website, kmre.org, and click on the podcast link. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We'll be back again next week. Listen to us Sunday, 5 p.m., Thursday at noon, and Saturday at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea that you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. Today's episode, Electrical Signals and Living Systems, was produced in the Spark Radio KMRE Studios, located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. Our producer is Eric Faburetta. The engineer today is Nathan Miller. 
Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.